Please remain standing and continue in prayer with me. Almighty God, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us this morning to overshadow us. Lord, empower these words that I will give. May they be to your people the very words of your spirit, words of life and light. And spirit, empower all of our hearts so that we might receive what you have for us this morning from your most precious and holy word. We give ourselves to you and we commend ourselves to your love and care and nourishment this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. 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 You may be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning. Um, if you would, uh, please turn with me to our lesson from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we'll be at this morning. That's where we'll be focusing. Last week, we looked at Judges chapter 6, which challenged us with this truth, that the presence of God to us by his spirit is the true source of strength and power, the strength and power that we desperately need to draw upon to exercise the gifts that God has given to us and to do what God has called us to do in this life, in this world, indeed in this parish, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our vocations, in this city. This week I want to continue our look at spiritual gifts. I promise we will stop talking about spiritual gifts at some point, uh, this week most likely. Um, but I want to continue our focus on this, on spiritual gifts and divine gifting more generally keeping in mind that when Scripture speaks of spiritual gifts, when Scripture speaks of spiritual gifts or any sort of gifting, it does so with a job, with a task, with a mission in view that God calls us to do or to accomplish by His power. God always gives gifts for some purpose. And we heard some of those purposes back when we were going through 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. But there are so many purposes with which God equips us and gifts us in this life, whether those are spiritual gifts or the natural abilities that he has given to us or other sorts of gifts in this life. Our lesson from 1 Corinthians 15 concerning the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the Christian dead raises for us another important matter that we need to address concerning the gifts that God has given to us and the work that he has called us to do, that he has called us to exercise those gifts for. Yet you might be thinking, what in the world, and I thought about this a little bit myself, what in the world does the resurrection of the dead have to do with spiritual gifts and the purpose for which we are to exercise those gifts? Well, to begin to answer this question, I want to tell you about a scene near the end of The Lord of the Rings. The book's not the movie, though I'm not sure how much of this is captured in the movies. In this scene, Sam the Hobbit awakens. You might be familiar with this. His dreams have come true. Against all odds, he and Frodo had succeeded in destroying the Ring of Power. Sauron and the evil forces of Mordor had been defeated, and now he awakens in the safekeeping of King Aragorn and in the presence of Gandalf, whom he thought was dead. And Gandalf says, well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? And this is Tolkien at this point. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf! I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. 
Is everything sad going to become untrue? Sam's question is much, much bigger than simply, will my story end happily? He is asking about the story of the whole world. And of course, his world is Middle Earth. Is everything sad? Everything sad in the whole wide world going to come untrue? And the answer in Tolkien's imaginative Middle Earth is yes, it will. The king has returned. Evil has been defeated. And so everything sad is beginning to become untrue. What a marvelous and imaginative portrayal of the resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago was the turning point in human history. Like We have to be very specific about it because it was an event, an historical event, a bodily resurrection 2,000 years ago that redefined and changed the course of human history and indeed the history of all creation. And like the defeat of Sauron in Lord of the Rings, the resurrection of Jesus means that God has won. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated. On the morning Jesus rose from the dead, the whole world awakened to a new, to a new and unexpected horizon. The ice and snow, which we didn't receive yet, but the ice and snow of our eternal winter is beginning to thaw with the resurrection of Jesus. God was finally, at last, fulfilling his ancient promises to make all things new. Now, some authors would have seen it as a great way to end the story but not Tolkien, and not even God. Not that they're on par. One is imitating the other, believe me. (laughs) While their greatest enemy has been defeated, and this does mean that everything that is sad will become untrue, there is still work to do. And for the last hundred pages or so of the novel, what happens? Sam and the other hobbits, they go to work, bringing order to the kingdom, bringing truth, goodness, and beauty into Middle-earth. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's lengthy meditation on the resurrection as God's guarantee that for real, in reality, everything sad will become untrue. And at the very end of this chapter, Paul concludes his exploration of the resurrection by saying this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's still work to do. And there it is. Evil has been defeated, and so we have work to do, exercising our gifts, and this work done in the Lord will not be in vain. It literally will not be empty empty of significance, empty of meaning, empty of effectiveness or of result. It will not be in vain. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus gives ultimate meaning and purpose to the work of God, to the work that God has equipped you to do, whether that's in the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ, in your family, at your workplace. God has equipped you to do this work, and this work will not be in vain. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think it is. It is wrapped up in a much larger story defined by the resurrection of Jesus. You see, at times we can be paralyzed in exercising our gifts 
because we mistake ourselves as the true source of strength. That's what we looked at last week. And at other times, we can become equally paralyzed when we lose sight of what it's all for. When we lose sight of what makes our lives and what we do with them meaningful and full of purpose, not empty, not in vain. Paul's claim that 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything. It sets everything in a new and meaningful context. The resurrection of Jesus, and this is important, the resurrection of Jesus reframes the story of creation and human history within it. And it reframes your life, redefining your past, giving meaning to your present, even if that present seems like death. God gives meaning to death by his resurrection and offering a sure hope for your future. The resurrection is the basis upon which God gives our lives ultimate meaning and purpose. And we need to know that to exercise our gifts and not to be paralyzed, but to do so for the purposes that God has given to us wrapped up in the resurrection. In our lesson from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 20, we encounter just a piece of Paul's argument concerning the resurrection that culminates in that concluding verse of verse 58. In the church of Corinth, it appears that everyone believed Jesus rose from the dead. Seems like everyone's got that down. However, some influential folks in the church were teaching that although Christ was raised from the dead, there would be no general resurrection of the dead. The Christian dead would not rise bodily in the future. Most likely they were capitulating to their culture, which believed that whatever afterlife there might be, it was disembodied. There would be. This, was, this sounded fantastical to them, that there would be bodily resurrection. Maybe as equally fantastical as it sounds to us at times. But this is the claim. This is the truth. This is the reality of Jesus rising from the dead, God raising him bodily. This false claim that there will be no bodily resurrection of those who have died in Christ is what Paul addresses in verses 12 through 19. And Paul demonstrates the absurdity of this false claim that there is no resurrection of the dead by laying bare, by laying bare its logical, its logical consequences. In essence, Paul is saying, okay, let's play this out. What does it look like if the dead are not raised? So look with me in verse 13. Paul lays out the chief consequence of this claim. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, general resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul insists that denying the possibility of resurrection knocks the bottom out from under the Christian faith entirely. Because, and this is the reason, because to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes any and all resurrections possible. To deny the resurrection of the dead means to, to deny the resurrection of one who makes any and all resurrections possible. Paul is saying that if resurrection is not possible over here, for one group, for the Christians, for the believers in the future, then resurrection was not possible back here for Christ. You see, Paul clearly understands the work of God in and through the waters of baptism. Now, I'm reading this passage at this point through the lens of Romans 6. In the waters of baptism, God, 
by an outpouring of his spirit, so thoroughly unites a person to Jesus that what is true of Jesus is true of the baptized believer who comes in faith and repentance. Paul states this in Romans 6, verses 4 through 5, when he claims, we are, listen to the union language in this, we were baptized therefore with him, with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, so just as Christ, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united in a resurrection like his. The resurrection of Jesus is not an isolated event, a blip in world history. And as a result, neither will the resurrection of baptized Christian believers be an isolated event. The two occurrences, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, are bound together as one. The timing is different, but both are bound together as one. So if one doesn't happen, if that can't happen, then the other doesn't happen. That's Paul's argument here. Okay. But Paul doesn't even end there. You might think, well, that's, that sounds like the trump card. But Paul doesn't end there. No, he goes further down the rabbit hole in order to demonstrate the absurdity of this false claim. And I do promise you we'll be getting back to gifts in a second. But keep, bear with me here. In verses 14 through 19, Paul reveals that to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny your future as a Christian. And for Paul, if we have believed... If we have believed in the future when there is no future, then, all, then of all human beings, we are the most to be pitied. That's his claim. If we've believed in a future and there is, in fact, no future because we've denied the resurrection, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied in this world. Not because Christian existence is interested only in the future, but because when you lose your future, you lose your past and your present as well. That's Paul's claim. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, only in this life, no future hope here, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, our lives become unmoored, drifting aimlessly in this world, directed by our own whims and desires, and driven by circumstances beyond our control. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we do not inhabit a world story where everything sad is coming untrue, where death is swallowed up by life. And without the resurrection, our lives, more particularly, become unstoried, unstoried, meaning that we lose our place within the unfolding drama of God where everything sad and even our lives is coming untrue. And if everything that is sad is not coming untrue, this is, for sake of argument, is not coming untrue, if there is no resurrection, then everything we are about as Christians is meaningless, is empty, is hollow, it lacks substance. This is what Paul says. Listen to him in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, that's the preaching of the gospel, what he's just mentioned in verses 1 through 11, I give to you what is of first importance, that which I received, that Christ Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, and that he was raised again three days later according to the scriptures. That gospel, that preaching, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the gospel itself, 
is in vain. It's empty. It's hollow. It's meaningless. It's without effect. And not only that, your faith then is in vain, empty, hollow, meaningless, without effect. Paul is saying that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the gospel itself, the good news itself, which he preached, is meaningless. It has no effect in this world. It is a delusion. And then we, above all people, are to be pitied because we follow a lie. That's Paul's argument. That's what he says the logical conclusion is if you deny the resurrection of the dead, that the gospel becomes meaningless. And then as a result, your faith in the gospel and the good news of Jesus is hollow and without significance. It does nothing in reality for you in this world. The emptiness of the gospel and the hollowness of your faith results for Paul in two further consequences. He's not done. Showing kind of the absurdity of this. Two further consequences, which he states in verses 17 and 18. You can see those there. And if Christ, this is Paul, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So he's picked back up the argument. Your faith is futile. It's worthless. And you are still in your sins. Consequence number one. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Consequence number two. Here's what Paul is saying. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then the gospel and your faith are empty and meaningless in this world. And if the gospel and your faith are empty and meaningless, then your sins are not forgiven and you are still alienated from God. Right? All of the weight of God's righteousness and his holiness is coming to bear on you. You are still alienated from him. And if sins are not forgiven and we are still alienated from God, then death. Death, which is the result of sin, has the final word in this world and in our lives. When we die, we perish. That's what Paul says is the conclusion to saying the dead do not rise bodily in this world. We have no hope. When we die, we perish. And if this is the case, Paul says in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 15, then just let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All that is left, the only meaning left in this world and for our lives is the pleasure of the moment, whatever you can make of it. Yet, this is, I'm so glad the lectionary doesn't end in verse 19. Yet, this is not the case. Look at verse 20, just listen to it. But in fact, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits indicates that it is not an isolated event. It's just the beginning of the harvest. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Thanks be to God, Christ has been raised. And if he has been raised, let's reverse this because we need to hear it. If he has been raised, then the gospel is full of meaning and effectiveness. And if the gospel is full of meaning and effectiveness, then our faith is not in vain. It is not worthless. And if our faith is not worthless and the gospel is not empty, then our sins have indeed been forgiven and we have been reconciled to God. And if God has dealt once and for all with sin, if he has dealt once and for all with sin, then he has indeed conquered death. He did this all in Jesus' death and resurrection. Death itself has been defeated. 
and it will be defeated finally in an ultimate sense when Christ returns. Isn't this what Paul says later on? When God puts all things under his feet, and what is that last enemy to be defeated? Death itself. Therefore, Paul can claim now at the end of this chapter in verses 54 through 57 that when Christ returns and raises the dead to a bodily life that is imperishable, immortal, the ancient promises of God from Isaiah will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul continues, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ by demonstrating the absurdity of the claim there is no resurrection of the dead Paul reaffirms the significance of the resurrection of Christ and in reaffirming the the significance of the resurrection of Christ Paul reaffirms the meaningfulness and purposefulness of our lives here and now as Christians. Christians who have a hope that informs and makes significant their past and their present. And this is where it impacts the exercise of our gifts to do what God has entrusted us to do, what he has called us to do in this life. Because God has raised Jesus from the dead, and because he unites us to Jesus in his resurrection, we are drawn. Right? Remember that union that we saw read in Romans 6 of baptism where we are united so intimately and inseparably with Jesus in his death and resurrection, his life? We are drawn up into the very work and mission of God to make all things new, to work with God to bring life in the midst of death. And this is why, this is why Paul ends this chapter This beautiful chapter on the resurrection with these words in verse 58 that we read earlier. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Earlier, in verses 1 or 2, he said, this is what we stand upon. It's the gospel message that he preaches of the resurrection. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is what Paul is saying. Because we have a future hope that is sure, the complete defeat of sin and death realized in our bodily resurrections, that is sure. Because we have that future hope, then we have confidence that what we do now in obedience to God by exercising our gifts will not be in vain, will not be meaningless. They will not be empty or insignificant. Our work in this life is Meaningful. It is utterly meaningful because it participates with the very resurrection of Jesus. And what God is doing through that power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1. Our work in this life is meaningful. It's full of purpose. And we might think after a wonderful chapter like this, on the resurrection that Paul would conclude by saying something like, so let's just rejoice. Let's rejoice and be happy. Jesus is alive from the dead. You have a future hope. But he doesn't. And this is why. Because the truth he has been explaining, the truth of the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of the living is, ju- is not just a truth about the future. It is a truth about the present significance of who we are and what we do. And if it is true, and it is, I mean, I... I believe it is. 
that God raised Jesus from the dead and as a result is going to transform this present world and renew our whole selves, our bodies included, then what we do in this present time, in this world, with our bodies, and with the gifts that God has given to us, matters. It has ultimate significance. And it doesn't matter what your gifting is. It doesn't matter if your gifting is service and it's cleaning toilets or sweeping or whatever. All of that doesn't matter. All the gifts are wrapped up in the victory of Jesus. Nothing is insignificant. Nothing. Anything you do, whether it's seen or unseen, is significant because it is wrapped up and it participates in the very victory of Christ. You have a hope, not only of a future, but of a meaningful present existence now, using those gifts, using your life, spending it for the glory of God. It does not matter how insignificant you see yourself or your giftings, you and your gifts are made utterly significant in this world at the present time by God, by the God who created the world and by the God who redeemed the world and by the God who is renewing the world in Jesus. Evil, sin, and death have been defeated. And they still need to be defeated. That's what he's called us to do. The king is returning. He has returned. And he will return. And so we have work to do, exercising our gifts by the power of God with us, participating with him as he makes everything sad come untrue. May God help us, especially in those moments when it seems utterly difficult or impossible. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.